Well, good morning again here in the auditorium. Good morning to everyone in the venue and at carneyefree.com. My name is Adrian, and it's great to be with you today. Hey, we have a couple special guests here today. Um, Brian and Lori Klein and Tim and Sherry Peterson, I believe, are in the room, not positive. Guys, if you're in the room, would you raise your hand? There's Brian and Lori. Wonderful. Praise God. So good to see you, Tim and Sherry. In the... Okay, so Tim and Sherry will be here today as well. If you have a moment to say hi to Brian and Lori and to Tim and Sherry today, they're here for the 10-year anniversary of the bilingual ministry and also just to join us in worship today. And, uh, and Brian and Lori and Tim and Sherry have uh, served this church faithfully for decades. And uh, we're so thankful for your service. We love you guys. We miss you like crazy. Miss you like crazy, but we are so glad, though, that you're here today. And uh, our brothers, brother and sister, brother and sister Tim and Sherry, um, locally and in Kansas City, great to be with you today. Yeah. <laughs> miss serving with those guys, but so grateful for their service to our Lord Jesus and um, glad to be with them today. Hey, we are in week four of our 11-week series called Rooted, and uh, we're going to jump right in. Um, we have a full service today. In addition to the message at the end, you're going to hear a beautiful testimony that you're not going to want to miss today. It's really, really significant. But what we've been doing here in Rooted is mostly looking at a number of different spiritual rhythms, though, that we would enter into, as well as really critical theological truths for the Christian life. Today's message in Rooted, and if you're doing the studies in Rooted along with your life group, uh, the studies related to this week's message is not so much about a rhythm or a theological truth so much for the Christian life as much as it is about the greatest objection to Christianity today. And frankly, it's the objection that all of us have thought ourselves when we've been alone in the darkness of our own bedroom. And it's the objection that we've all heard from many other people, perhaps dozens or even hundreds of times. It's the objection which every religion, every worldview, I might add, must render an answer to this one, not just Christianity, it's this basic question that frankly unites all different kinds of people from all different cultures. Every people group will ask this question, why is there so much pain in this world? Am I right? Why is there so much pain in my world? Where is God in this seemingly God-forsaken world at times? This is the question that frankly unites us all. Sometimes people put it this way, why do so many bad things happen to seemingly good people? In many different ways from different people, we all ask this question at one time or another. I wanna just speak for a few moments here though this morning on the why of suffering and the why related to suffering and evil is very important that you're able to have an answer related to that. It's very important that you have an intellectual answer related to that when you're not in suffering, okay? When you're not in suffering, you must have a good intellectual answer for the why of suffering. 
or maybe you've already come through it and you're on the back side of it, having answers related to the why is very important. If you're right smack in the middle of suffering experience today, the why answers won't help you much. If you're right smack in the middle of suffering today, what you need to know is who is very near to you and how he would help you and how the church would help you. And we're gonna speak a bit about that today as well, but but I wanna start off this morning with this theological question, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And in a nutshell, what I would say is this, we all experience evil and suffering because God chose to create free people, not programmed robots. God chose to create free people, not programmed robots. He could have created robots who had no other choice but to serve and obey him, but that would not include love or freedom, now would it? Now, in my neighborhood, I have a few neighbors who have those robotic lawnmowers. Anybody else? And, um, you know, they do a pretty good job. They kind of look like these big, giant turtles on wheels. And my dog loves barking at him. I really try to keep my dog away. That would be nasty. Um, But those those lawnmowers, like I'm told, basically what would they do is you program the coordinates on your phone. You have an app, and then it matches up well with this lawnmower, this robot, and it goes back and forth across your lines, basically stays inside of the boundaries of your property, and it really seems to do a pretty good job before it goes back into its charging board and lives a sad little life there. And you see them all the time now, and again, they do a relatively good job. Now, I have two wonderful boys, and I taught them how to mow the lawn themselves a number of years ago. And let's just put it this way, when they first learned how to mow the lawn, they, they mowed most of the lawn. And inevitably, though, there was a line or two, though, that was missed for the first month or two that they were doing this. And sometimes that area back behind the garden box turned into this wild jungle. And there was some cleanup work, though, that somebody needed to do. But after a month or two of that and a little bit of instruction here or there, my boys learned how to mow the lawn quite well. And they do an exceptional job now. And something just tells me that I find a little bit more pleasure in seeing my boys learn a new skill and learn to do it well than I would in having one of those robotic lawnmowers do it automatically every time. You know what I'm saying here? Could it be? Could it be that God finds pleasure when we learn to live inside his lines, when we learn to live inside of his standards, inside of the 10 commandments that he has given, when we learn how to love others really well, much in the same way that Jesus did, could it be that that provides God great pleasure much in the same way as a mother or father has great pleasure in seeing their kids learn how to do something well? Friends, God has made us with freedom. God has made us with freedom to make good choices or choices for ill, to do so every month, every week, every day, every hour, 
And the consequences are vast. The consequences, for good or for ill, for the choices that you make every month, every week, every day, every hour, are vast. The creation of a world where good and evil are possible is like the best possible world that God could have created because it includes freedom and the opportunity to choose love for God's kids even when the choices we make sometimes end up breaking God's heart. I want you to look at a verse from Genesis chapter six which is absolutely stunning to me that speaks to me of the character of God and how his heart breaks literally when we choose against his will. Genesis 6.6, 6. let's read this out loud from the screen both here in the auditorium and the venue, please join me. The Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth, it, it broke his heart. It broke God's heart to see the way humanity was back then, and I dare say it must break his heart to see the way humanity, including me, sometimes is today. Jesus literally was grieved in much the same way when he looked over Jerusalem and he saw the way the leaders in Israel were rejecting him and rejecting the other prophets that were sent before Jesus. And he goes up to the Mount of Olives and he looks down on the old city of Jerusalem and here's what he says. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent by God to you. Right here, Luke chapter 13. Stone those sent by God to you. How often I have longed to gather you. How often I have longed to gather you. Near to me, together with me. Much like a hen. A mother hen would gather her chicks under her arms. What was the problem? What was the problem? You were not willing. You, straight from the lips of Jesus, you would not have me. You were not willing. You wanted to go your own way. You wanted to do your own thing. Please hear me now. Please hear me. Most of the suffering across most of the world is due to poor human choices. Yours and mine. Most of the suffering across most of the world comes as a result of us not choosing to accept the invitation of God that we would follow him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just on a one-time basis when we come to accept Christ as our Savior, but on a day-in, day-out basis as he wants to conform us to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, like, if you want to fight the pervasive reality of suffering and evil in this world, here's the very first thing that you do. You ready? You look in the mirror. That's the very first thing that you do. If you want to fight the pervasive suffering and evil around the world, the very first thing that God calls us to do each and every day is to look square in the mirror. You might say, okay, Adrian, that's, that's fine. That makes sense with respect to moral evil in the world. 
to some degree, I can see what you're saying related to moral evil in the world, but, but how about all the natural evil in the world like cancer and hurricanes and tornadoes? And I mean, how do you make sense of all of these things that are not the result of a human choice? That's a huge question. And uh, I don't have time to go into all that one could say about that, but suffice it to say, as we discussed two weeks ago, we remind ourselves today, God is the master artist, and he chose to create all of us in his image and likeness. And remember when he first created the earth, what did he say about the earth that he created, friends? What did he say? It is good, it is good, it is good. Over and over again, he said, it is good. Okay, so God creates in beauty, he creates gloriously, and it was good. And then what happened next? What happened next was humanity chooses to go their own way. The original couple says, yes, God, I know that you've given me these boundaries, but I'm going to do it my way. And when pride enters into the universe for the very first time, through Satan and through that first couple, when pride enters into the universe for the very first time, all relationships get fractured. Remember that? Relationship with God gets fractured. That's the most important relationship. Relationship with our own selves gets fractured. Our psychology gets all messed up. Anybody else? Okay? Relationship with each other gets fractured and relationship with the beautiful earth that God created gets fractured as well. And so thorns and thistles begin to grow up, and while there is still much beauty that is retained in this glorious world, it is decaying, is it not? This world is decaying, and the biblical worldview actually makes sense of the wreckage that we see all around us. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it up in Romans chapter 8. He says, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into this present moment. It's longing for its liberation, longing for release from its bondage and from its decay. The whole creation is groaning in the pain of childbirth. And this is what we see all over the place. And so now, after the original couple fell, and all of us would fall as well, I might add, what happens is we are born with a different kind of moral compass. Originally, we were born with a compass that pointed true north. But after the original couple, our compass doesn't point true north anymore. It points to our belly buttons. We look out for me, myself, and I. That's moral evil, but then on top of that, biological systems are affected in this universe. Both on a microscopic and a macro level, this universe is groaning for its liberation. So on a microscopic level, biological systems are in disarray, which is why you have cancers and pandemics. And then on a macro level, you have one season away, flood or drought, Atmospherically, though, this is the reality, though, that we now live in. And you say, who's to blame for all of this? This is always the question. Who can I blame for, for all of this? And friends, I just believe, I could be wrong, but I believe one day, well, we'll go to heaven and we will learn that indirectly, humans are responsible for many of those things too. 
I actually believe that that'll happen, that we'll learn when we get to heaven that because of the ways that we have constantly put preservatives and sugar and tobacco and alcohol and all kinds of other stuff into our bodies and so much pollution into this world, we experience some of the consequences that we now call natural evil. Now, I'm not saying that's everything, okay? That'd be a simplistic answer to say that's everything. There's much mystery in this, but there's no question. There's no question that the things that we put into our bodies and the things we put into this world have an effect. It's unquestionable. And so it's kind of a misnomer to simply call those things natural evil or natural suffering. Now, again, this question, who's to blame on many of these things, I simply say, I don't know. But I do know this, God is good. On many things, I don't know, but I do know this, God is good, and I know that Jesus, when he was in the flesh, what did he do? He confronted things like leprosy. He confronted things like disease and paralysis. That would be very odd to blame him as he's simultaneously confronting them. Wouldn't that be odd? Okay, the, the way Jesus dealt with diseases though, that he saw was he confronted them. It would be very odd then to blame him for those. Now, obviously Jesus can and he does redeem the, those kinds of things and we'll talk about those in just a moment. But friends, if you begin to blame God for all of these evil, wicked things that we see all over the world, you begin to blame God for all of your suffering experiences that don't seem to have a direct cause, here's what'll happen. It will erode your trust in the goodness of God and I do not want that for you. Now, in terms of caring for someone who is suffering, let's just remind ourselves, the question, who is to blame, is the wrong question, right? The right question when you're caring for someone who's suffering is, how can I help? Can I be present with you? Can I weep with you? Can we go to God together? Because I believe he cares about you. Those are the right kinds of questions. We, we never look for that answer of who's to blame when we're working with someone who is suffering. Now, if you're going through suffering or evil today, you might ask, how can anything good come of this? And if you're asking that question today, or someday you probably will ask that question, here, here's the idea that I hope you'll take from this message today. I do hope you'll hold on to those intellectual answers that I just spoke to, but perhaps even more, I hope that you'll hold on to, to this statement. Suffering, my friends, here's the big idea. Suffering is the teacher we need to become the kind of disciples that God wants. Suffering is the teacher we need to become the kind of disciples that God wants. I, I never would have chosen this teacher myself. How about you? <laughs> but it's definitely the teacher that I've needed. It is definitely the schoolhouse for life that has been far and away the most powerful schoolhouse for conforming me a little bit more and a little bit more to the likeness of Jesus Christ. If you're going through an experience of suffering right now, I want to give you just a little bit of hope. I hope it'll be hopeful. Um, 
that good can come from it. And I want to share with you a few different things though that I've learned through my own suffering experiences that I hold on to each time I go back into another suffering experience. These are three things that God has taught me along the way. So this is purely autobiographical. I'm not gonna get into a lot of details, but these are three things that as I look back on my life to, to this point, suffering experiences in childhood, in early adulthood, in later adulthood, and I've had plenty. I've had plenty too. Here's three things that God has taught me. The first one is this. I can take my darkest emotions to God. I've learned over the years that God is big enough for my darkest emotions. You look at the longest book of the Bible, for example, and this is just one example, the book of Psalms, over 33% of the 150 Psalms are what you call Psalms of Lament. And laments are cries out to God. They are prayers in pain that lead to trust. That's what a lament is. It's crying out to God with my deepest and darkest pain, and slowly over time, as I cry it out to God, eventually I might grow in trust with God. And what you see in the Psalms over and over again is ordinary people like us who are seeking to grow with God, and they take the life with God seriously. They're not laissez-faire about their life with God. It's people like King David and Solomon and Asaph and others, and they take life with God very seriously. And when they get to really, really difficult circumstances, they realize that there is one in the universe who is big enough to handle their emotions. And so they cry out to God, and most of the Psalms are basically like a prayer journal. Really, like when you read the Psalms, you can think of it that way. It's kind of like a prayer journal in which man is saying to God, this is what I'm feeling, and God says to man, you are welcome to write that down, and I'll put it as part of the word of God, which is just amazing to me. Okay, so in the midst of pain, King David cries out again and again. Look at this one example. Psalm 13 is a short psalm. It's a psalm of lament. Just follow along with me. You'll see it up on the screen. You can go back and read it later on. King David says this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer. Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. What do you hear there? You hear a man saying to God, where are you, God? I'm in anguish. My enemies are about to triumph over me and he's in despair over it. And God says, it's okay, you're welcome to say that to me. It reminds me of a autobiography, excuse me, a biography I read of Abraham Lincoln a number of years ago. Maybe you know this already, but Abraham Lincoln used to write these hot letters. And, uh, you know, he'd have some kind of tussle with someone in the Senate or one of his cabinet members, and he'd get really, really angry with them. Abraham Lincoln had quite a, a, a temper. And he would get really angry with them, and so what he would do is he'd take out a sheet of paper and he'd write a letter down with all of his vitriol, all of his anger towards sender so-and-so. And then he would sit on that letter, and he wouldn't put it on Twitter. <laughs> he would sit on that letter, and he'd sit on that letter, 
And maybe a week or two later, you know what he would do with it? He'd put it in the fire. And he reflected that those hot letters allowed him to get his emotions out on page in a safe way without saying some, something disastrous to, to someone else. That's the idea that you have uh, from King David here. God is big enough to handle all of my emotions. I'm gonna write them down and give them to him. And after having cried out to God from the depths of his belly, here's how he closes out. I imagine that David maybe wrote Psalm 13 in a couple different sittings. I'm not sure, but we don't believe, we don't necessarily have to believe that all of these Psalms were written all at once. As with many pieces of artwork, an artist writes and then he backs away from his artwork and then he comes back to it again. Maybe he writes verses five and six later on, but after he's had some time dealing with his emotions, he says this, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been so, so good to me. King David understands that we're going to take the cries of our hearts somewhere. We might as well take them to mighty God. The Psalms confirm that we can bring our full selves to God. Listen to Psalm 56, verse eight. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. The image here is of a, of a woman holding a bottle around her neck as her husband in the military goes off to war. And as he goes off to war, she cries into this bottle, and this would happen in ancient days, and she would collect all those tears such that when he came home, she would show him that bottle. This is how much I missed you. This is how much I cared for you. Imagine God like that toward you. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Oh, that's the God for me. How about you? You hold each one in your bottle. You collect each one in your book. The compassion and the grace of our God. Not the school that I would have chosen, but certainly the school that I need. Here's the second thing that I've learned from God during my different times of suffering. I've learned that I can either get better or bitter. I can either get bitter or better. And frankly, my friends, there's good and there's bad in life, and we just have to anticipate that there will be challenges across all of life. In a world east of Eden, that's just the way life goes. Expect that there will be good and bad. Because the rain pours on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, including me because I'm both, and the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, because that's just the way life goes. And when it happens, we'll either get bitter or better. I love the way the artist Lecrae put this in his famous rap song, I'll, I'll Find You. He says, don't get bitter, get better. I'm working on switching them letters, but tell God I need a whole lot of hope keeping it together. That's where we are. I'll either get bitter or better. God, I need a whole lot of hope keeping things together because it feels like it's overwhelming right now. Friends, I've just noted over the years that when you ask people why they don't believe in God, the most frequent answer they'll give you is suffering experiences. But likewise, if you ask people when they got closest to God, the most frequent answer that you'll get is their suffering experiences. You will get bitter or better. Please bring your suffering experiences to God that he could switch them letters. Okay, I, I promise you, as I look back on my life, which hasn't been a bed of roses, 
It's when I've had little that I've learned how to give thanks to God for what I do have. It's when I've been defeated that I've learned to get back up. It's when I've been injured that I've learned how to persevere. It's when I've been tempted that I've learned what it means to have self-control. It's when I've failed. It's when I've failed that I've learned what it means that God is gracious to me in my failures. It's when I've been ignored that I've learned that God listens. It's when I've been hated without cause that I've learned that I'm loved without condition by someone. And it's when people insulted me that I've really actually learned what God says about me. How about you? It's in the midst of suffering experiences that we oftentimes learn the very best things about God and we move from bitter to better. We never develop the kind of character that we want by running from our suffering experiences. It just doesn't happen that way. The way we develop the kind of character that we want is by leaning into God in the midst of our suffering experiences and asking God to meet us there and transform us there and then we're able to grow far from that. Don't run from it. Lean into God in the midst of it and he will grow you right there. It's the best schoolhouse. It's the teacher though that we need. You think of a lump of coal, right? How does a diamond come into this world? It's pressurized underground by a lump of coal that eventually exerts enough pressure onto it that a diamond can emerge. And so also with us, when we are pressurized by the school of suffering, that eventually a more radiant, God-honoring man or woman can emerge. C.S. Lewis probably said it best in 1942, I believe, as London was getting bombed in the midst of World War II, and he was given this series of talks on the BBC network to comfort the people of England in the midst of war. And he famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. And he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is the megaphone to rouse a deaf person and a deaf world. Here's the last thing for today anyway that I've learned from my suffering experiences. Never would have chosen this, but it's the school teacher that I've needed. I've learned that I can become compassionate toward anyone. I wonder if you've learned the same thing. It's through suffering that you actually learn that you are able to be compassionate toward anyone. Suffering is like the ultimate leveler. Because no matter who you meet, no matter their background, no matter their sin issue, no matter their political party, no matter their sexuality, no matter anything else, I guarantee you this, they want goodness for their kids. And I guarantee you this, they want their parents to die with dignity. 
And I guarantee you this, they've had suffering experiences too. And if you're willing to lead out of grace and out of compassion with your suffering experiences, you can have an entree into their lives, which you will never get if you lead out of anger. It's out of suffering that God has taught me that basically we're all the same. And therefore I can meet anyone in any suffering anywhere. If I haven't had the exact same suffering as them, it really doesn't matter. I've learned God's compassion for me. And as that sinks deep into my soul, by his grace I can demonstrate compassion to others. Which is precisely what the Bible tells us should happen. 2 Corinthians 1 says it best. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others in any trouble that they go through with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Jesus Christ. Anyone you think of, anyone right now that you dislike, you could meet them where they are if you identify with Christ in the midst of your sufferings and you allow him to comfort you in those such that you would then say, God, would you please use me to comfort someone else who's struggling? So powerful. So powerful. This is what our broken world needs. And this is what the church, through Jesus Christ our Lord, can actually provide. I want to close here, though, this morning by sharing a story by video of a beautiful family in our church, at least part of a family, that has committed in their hearts, God, I'd like to comfort others with the comfort you have given me in some of the worst pain that I could ever imagine. Take a look. Well, with me now are uh, some dear friends of mine, uh, Vicki and Jordan Maupin, and they've agreed to uh, share some of their story as they've gone through a difficult couple of years and uh, I just think their story is very, very powerful for our church to hear a bit of today. Um, Vicki, would you mind sharing with the church a little bit about your beloved husband, Eric? Yeah. Um, I knew Eric since we were first graders. <laughs> we were neighbors. Um, we started dating in high school, so he was like my high school sweetheart and my best friend for a lot, well, since 1986, a lot of years, and then my husband for almost 28 years. We were going on 28 years of marriage. Um, in September of 2021, so just two years ago, um, we had come down with COVID. It was on the 13th of September for me, and then just two, two days later, um, he got it and Jordan got it as well. We all three had it at the same time. And uh, 
on about day 10 for me, um, things took a turn for the worse and um, for Eric as well, actually on the same day. Next morning, we got wheeled up to the ICU, both Eric and I together, and um, I don't remember much about those that time in the hospital. I remember bits and pieces, but 12 days later, I got released, and then a week after that, uh, he passed away from COVID in the hospital. Yeah, so that was a shock, mm -hmm. a shock. And I was in a fog, not only from his death, but from COVID. And I don't remember a lot about, about that time. I was like praying every day and I was like, God, where are you? Like, come on, like I need my dad. And I was experiencing like great anxiety leading up to his death and what I felt like was hope, but it was more like false hope. Um, and then after, after he died is when everything kind of exploded emotionally. I was really angry. Like I felt like I had the rug pulled out from beneath my feet. Um, it, it got to the point that whenever someone would talk to me about, oh, just keep going to church, oh, just keep praying, just keep diving into God, it would make me angrier. And it made me want to go to church less. It made me want to talk to God less. And so I stopped going to church and I stopped praying. I stopped being around people who were trying to breathe Jesus into me because it was just making me angry. So, um, you're, you're, you're well loved by a lot of people. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how people, um, cared for you and uh, supported you in what was the worst time. Mm. Um, Eric and I, we, we had been trying for a long time to rebuild our deck. Um, it was dangerous to be on. We thought we were going to fall through. Um, it was getting that bad. And, and at one point we thought we had enough money to um, get it rebuilt. But then all this happened and took place. And so we still had that really scary deck. And so our life group come around us and some of our old friends from some of our other places that we lived, Greeley, Nebraska and Pleasanton and and our life group members and some of our old life group members, they just gathered around us and they said, we're going to make that deck for you. Mm. And they did mm. in Eric's honor. Mm. And uh, one of our friends, Darren, he made this beautiful sign that says Eric's deck on it. And then everybody that took part in replacing that for me, for us, signed it. And then they mounted it on the deck. So we get to see that every day. It's just a huge blessing. I'm curious as you think back over these two years and you say, all right, here's, here's one or two things that I've, I've learned mm. that are really significant 
for me or that I've learned about God or I've learned about what the church should be, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, what, what are a couple of those or certain truths that you've been able to hold on to that have really helped you over these past couple of years? Answer mm. that first. Um, I would say, like, in way of, like, getting through all of the emotions that I was having when I lost my dad. Like, when it comes to the guilt part of it, I was reminded of my favorite verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which says, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. When I was going, trying to work through the whole anger thing, I realized the reason I was mad at God was because I thought he had broken a promise he made to me. And I realized that he didn't break a promise because he didn't even make that promise. He never told me that life would be easy or that I would get to have my dad for the rest of my life, you know? And so Eric's passing oh, by far was just the most gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching thing to for somebody I've known forever and my best friend. But I'm grieving healthy now. And um, I know where to get my strength from. And I do, I do. I, I've never felt so deeply, um, relationally in tune with God than I do now. I think about this this picture that, you know, God is still good even when he says no. Mm-hmm. Um, he sometimes says yes, he sometimes says no, he sometimes says wait, but he's always good. He's always good and, and he'll be near us at those times when he says no and we just trust his purposes. But I, this picture resonates with me that, you know, I, you look at it and you just focus in on the black and the darkness and just seems like a bunch of lines that doesn't mean anything. And, but if you look at the light, the white, you see something different. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you experience Jesus, it changes your life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. pray with me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you, God, that you did not promise us an easy life, but you did promise us that you would be very near to us in the midst of our suffering and you would bring great fruit out of it. You are able to redeem whatever we are going through today. You are the God of all grace. And as Jordan said so wisely there, your grace is sufficient for me. 
Your power is made perfect when I am so weak. So, Father, may your power be made perfect in us today. I pray especially for those who feel particularly weak right now, who are in the midst of heavy suffering experiences. May your power be great in them. Would you give them courage to lean in and experience the goodness of God, to taste and see that God is good even now and that you would redeem that pain that they are walking through. We love you, Lord. We thank you, God, that you are with us in the fire. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.